It's a nice looking jersey you got on, sir. I figured I'd try to clean it up a little bit, you know. Wait, I think this uh, one actually got blanked out. We tried to we tried to we tried to feature this one a couple weeks ago, and some producer might have accidentally covered it up. So hey, they had a big win. I want to say congrats to our friends up in Vermont. And uh, yeah, week three, pretty good. Yeah, hey, really good. I mean, a ten and zero. I'm ten and zero. Wait a minute, though. I did recall you saying something about there was no way that your sinus was going to win this weekend. I don't know why we didn't pick that game because it was one of the bigger games. So we ten and zero. I'll give you that. that <laughs> uh, much respect, but still, no chance. Any given Saturday, Frank. Yeah, uh, yeah. I uh, look. They're in my top 25 now. <laughs> There's not much else I can say about it besides that. Uh, yeah, although I was roaming the RPI sideline and somebody uh, in the slightly liquored up crowd, I would say, in the night game against WPI, uh, is, he hollers from the up above, who'd you pick in this game, Rossi? <laughs> I was like, oh, uh. <laughs> I'm like, RPI. And... Yeah, I did my little bow. Yep, but uh, apparently we are now renowned for picking against RPI and other things. Uh, th that's great. But, hey, JB, happy birthday to your dad, first things first, uh, before I uh, throw it into the open here. Happy birthday. And, yeah. Yep, uh, and uh, looking uh, dapper with that cake uh, that we're seeing. And, uh, you know, look. I, I'm still two behind you. I'm going to get those games back this week. I'm telling you, we've got a huge game coming up Saturday. We'll start to talk about just slightly at the end of the show. But, hey, folks, it's season 15 of In the Huddle. Season 15 of In the Huddle, week three in the books, crunch time coming up. And JB, I'll tell you, I, I didn't think we'd have the uh, level of upsets we saw. Uh, we're still lacking video from a number of schools. And uh, in some cases, we've learned it's purposefully. It's not like it's an accident. So to the schools that are doing that still, as I said to one SID the other day, if you don't think they're screen recording your games, the uh, people you're trying to keep them from, you're crazy, okay? The people you're hurting are not the opposing coaches. They're people like us and the fans that watch our show that want to see the highlights that we can pick out of your games, okay? That, that's, that's just stupidity uh, to me that they think that that's accomplishing something in 2022. Now that I'm off my soapbox, why don't you tell us what your view, that 30,000-foot view you give us every week, is of week three. Well, not a ton of surprises across the nation. I do think that overall, um, you know, like, like you said, Frank, we saw a couple of upsets here and there. But for the most part, for some pretty competitive games, the NESCAC got kicked off. Um, so that their week one is our week three. Uh, so we'll be talking about them here intermittently in region one. But elsewhere, um, no real surprises other than a couple of games, I think maybe in the, in the pack. And then in Region 3, Harden-Simmons 
Oof. They uh, they took it to number twenty four Platteville, pretty pretty bad. Um, and then also, you know, Barry acquitted themselves well against Whitewater. That could be a game, Frank, that we look to come playoff time. If they're eight and three and kind of on the borderline there, maybe the Vikings get a shot. We'll see. Eight and two, I think you mean, because uh, eight and three probably wouldn't eight get and two. it. And that, yep. Eight and two. <laughs> Sorry, my bad. Yep. <laughs> they're like, we got eleventh game, coach. Where 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 we get the eleventh game from? <laughs> No bye week for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn, you're you're mean. Uh, anyway, uh, we got a lot of highlights to go through here, so let's do it. This is crunch time for week three of the 2022 Division Three college football season. We'll start in Region 1, and uh, Lebanon Valley visited FDU Florham, who had started hot at 2-0. Let's start in the first quarter, 134 into it. It's Tim Irvay with a 35-yard touchdown run to make it 7-0 Lebanon Valley. In the second quarter, FDU Florham's Quinir Edwards gets a one-yard touchdown run to tie it up at 7 apiece. Nine minutes later, 105 left second quarter, Nason Brown, three-yard touchdown run. It's 14-7 FDU Florham. No scoring in the third. We go to the fourth quarter with 429 left, and Malachi Blair gets his 51-yard touchdown pass from Braden Bohannon to tie up the game 14 apiece. Then watch this as TJ Brown is intercepted by Ryan Enright at the 34-yard line of Lebanon Valley. So they had a chance to go in and score themselves, but they give up that chance. Here we go. Yeah, it takes us to overtime. The chance for FDU Florham. It's a miss by Chris Demedio. And then on the flip side, Devin Crone gets a 36-yard field goal in the Lebanon Valley half of overtime to win the game 17-14. Nick Mortar, two interceptions for uh, Lebanon Valley. And Devin Crone for Lebanon Valley, the game-winning 36-yard uh, field goal in overtime. Nescak play started up, and this one caught a lot of attention as Williams, which had the longest winning streak in Division Three, visited Colby. Colby was up 7-0 early as Brendan Sawyer gets a five-yard touchdown pass from Matt Hirsch to take a 7-0, excuse me, a 14-0 lead for Colby, a minute left first quarter. Then a minute and 55 seconds left second quarter, Williams' Jack Dickinson gets a seven-yard touchdown run. That would tie things up, 14-14 at halftime. But Colby's Matt Hirsch gets his own two-yard touchdown run, 21-14 Colby, 8.50 left third quarter. They'd add a field goal early in the fourth, and any hopes of a miracle comeback were thwarted here as Jack Dickinson uh, was intercepted by, intercepted by Will Nippon at the 27-yard line. That would do it. 24-14 Colby wins. They were tied at 14 at the half. Hirsch with 223 total yards, including two passing and one rushing touchdown. Then SUNY Maritime visited Merchant Marine. Jameson Kroll looking for his first win, hoping to do it in a rivalry game of all things. And USMMA would score early with a Matthew Savard one-yard touchdown run. Uh, it would get tied up, though, with three minutes left first quarter as Aiden Griffin gets a 69-yard interception return for a touchdown. The pick six made it 7-6 as the extra point, excuse me, the two-point conversion uh, pass failed. Second quarter, 12.47 left. Wow. Spins, throws, passes, caught. Inside the five and a touchdown for the Mariners. Tom Gaiman with a touchdown reception. 30 yards and the Mariners are up 13 to six. Six minutes later, 
Jeremiah Wong gets his own 21-yard touchdown run, 21-6 Merchant Marine. And then Savard gets his second touchdown of the game, this time a four-yard touchdown run with 30 seconds left in the first half. 28-7 there. They would run away with this game, 48-13. Congratulations to Coach Kroll on his first head coaching win. Outgained uh, SUNY Maritime did Merchant Marine, 525-305. And as uh, we said, that first win for Jameson Kroll. How about uh, Gallaudet at University of New England? No video available here, but we did want to show that Gallaudet gets a 34-31 win as their offense had 312 rushing yards, three passing touchdowns. Uh, quarterback uh, for UNE, uh, Jarrett Hinault, had 242 total yards, two passing, and one rushing touchdown. Let's go back to the videotape as we had Framingham State at UMD, a huge mascot game very early in the season here, and UMD would start up 7-0 early. Then Angel Sanchez, midway through the first quarter, gets a 22-yard touchdown pass from Dante Avila Santos, 14-0. He's looking to play 16 minutes of damn football in this game is Avila Santos. Second quarter, 137 left. It's Keenan Little getting a 23-yard touchdown pass from Avila Santos. It's 23-7, Mass Dartmouth. Two plays later, this is pretty much the killer for uh, Framingham State as Nick Afredo uh, rushes up for 16 yards, but then fumbles it. It's Sam Alicia, uh, former guest of ours on this show, uh, getting uh, the fumble recovery. A few plays later, Angel Sanchez, 50-yard touchdown pass from Dante Avila Santos, 29-7 in favor of UMass Dartmouth. We'll go to the third quarter. Here's a wild play. Pressure coming again. Gafredo escapes it, picked off on the far side. Still on his feet. Fumble lost at the end zone. Did he cross the plane? So the ball came out with the one. Sam Alicia, it's close. They determined that he did get possession inside the field of play in the end zone to make it a touchdown for UMD. That's 39-7. The ensuing kickoff, though, Framingham State showing some life here as Jaden Lewis gets a 90-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. 39-14 UMD. Is this going to be a comeback attempt here by Framingham State? Well, 8.38 left fourth quarter. Uh, Richarno Hilton gets a 29-yard touchdown run for UMD. 46-14 there. In the final, 46-21 in favor of UMD. Dante Avila Santos, what a day. 18 for 36, 321 yards, four passing touchdowns, one interception. UMD's defense, three interceptions, four tackles for loss, two sacks, and a fumble recovery. But congratulations to UMD for kind of getting over the hump finally. A team like Harden-Simmons is probably watching that saying, hey, we're going to try the same thing, trying to get over that proverbial hump we never can seem to get over on Saturday. Here's an example of a team that can do it. And we'll see if we get back-to-back -back weeks of telling that story. JB, take us through Region 1. Well, Region 1 was pretty competitive overall, Frank. If you look at the other scores, there's kind of a sandwich effect of going on with some close games um, with a few blowouts in the middle there. Uh, Endicott still seems to be the, the class of Region 1, at least for playoff eligible teams. Trinity had to hang on in the second half to keep Tufts from coming back. They, they got out to an early lead. And just, uh, my, my, my neighbor, Spencer Fetter, the, uh, the quarterback from, from Winter Park High, well, actually Trinity Prep, uh, in Winter Park, Florida, um, you know, help lead the way there. Middlebury beats Amherst. And then, of course, as you see, as we were repping these guys, the cadets, they won this beautiful uh, looking bucket with a 
stick and a stump. Um, that's the maple sap bucket game between Castleton and Norwich, 26 to 21. Um, hey, the beauty of D3 is sometimes these really interesting looking trophies. That's got to be right up there with one of them, man. I got to hold one of them in uh, one of the games we'll talk about in a little bit. But first, uh, let's go over some other Region 2 games here as Union visited Springfield. Always a great game between these two teams. This one did deliver in that respect again. In the first quarter, early scoring by Union's Andre Ross Jr., a 26-yard touchdown pass from Donovan Piketty, as we've learned. 7-0 Union leads at that point. Springfield would add two Christian Hutcher field goals to make it 7-6. Then there's his third and goal run by Donovan Piketty, gets to basically the one-inch line. They decide to go for it. With 3.21 left, uh, it's fourth down and goal here in the second quarter. Jonathan Anderson with the one-yard touchdown run, 14-6 Union at halftime. We'd go a long ways before we'd see scoring again, and a long ways is what I.K. Erebor went himself for the 74-yard touchdown run. Somebody get that man some oxygen as he is passing out in the end zone to take a 21-6 lead for Union, and that would do it. Union wins at 21-6 as Ike Arabor's nine rushes netted him 124 yards and a touchdown. Quarterback David Wells for Springfield, 158 total yards and an interception. No video here. Morrisville State, 17. St. Lawrence, 15. Stephen Friedrichs with a 249 total yard day, two rushing touchdowns. Quarterback uh, for St. Lawrence, Daniel Lothar gets 17 for 22 day, 175 yards, one rushing touchdown. Good try by St. Lawrence, but now Morrisville State at 3-0. Not necessarily where things uh, were expected to turn out. And Morrisville State may be a force to be reckoned with in the Empire 8. We'll see soon. WPI and RPI faced off in the Transit Trophy game. And I did attend that one. Five minutes into the game, Peter Lombardi gets a 10-yard touchdown pass from Matt Peterkowski. and made it 7-0 in favor of RPI. Then seven minutes later, stop me if you heard this one before, Peter Lombardi gets a touchdown pass from Matt Peter Kuski. It's a 21-yard pass, 21-yard uh, pass, excuse me, this time to make it 13-0. Extra point was blocked. But then Lombardi would get injured on a punt return and would not return to the game. Halftime score is 20-0 RPI. And then at the end of the third quarter, Dylan Burnett would get a 31-yard touchdown run and make it 27-0, but it was set up by this play by C.J. Shoemaker with this big interception, and he went and rumbled down the field uh, to get it within striking distance of the end zone to set up Burnett two plays later. So again, uh, you add 10 more points after that. It's 37-0 in favor of RPI in the Transit Trophy game. Burnett with 16 rushes, 130 yards, and a touchdown. RPI's defense, eight sacks, two interceptions, two fumble recoveries. Peter Lombardi, two touchdowns, left the game with the injury, as we said. Then, Muhlenberg, your sinus, we sort of talked a little bit about it at the beginning of the show, but uh, your sinus, probably not my biggest fans in the world. We'll talk about what they did. Uh, it took a full 21 minutes in this game before we had scoring as Justin Collier gets a 24-yard touchdown pass from Jack Sinitska. Uh, your sinus is quarterback. That's 7-0, your sinus. Then four minutes later, Zachary Throne, a 45-yard touchdown pass from Sinitska, 14-0. I'll learn not to stumble over that name at some point this season, folks, I promise. A minute later, though, Muhlenberg does respond as Joe Rapetti gets a four-yard touchdown run. It's 14-7, still your sinus's lead. Just before halftime, Dallas Evans gets a 12-yard touchdown pass from Sinitska to make it 21-7 at halftime. In the third quarter, 
the teams would trade touchdowns to start it. Then at the end of that third, Muhlenberg's Michael Feaster gets a 37-yard touchdown pass from Joe Rapetti. They're within seven again, 28-21, your sign is leading. 10.40 left in that fourth quarter. Dallas Evans again from Sinixka. It's 35-21 after that five-yard touchdown pass. 129 left fourth quarter. Joe Rapetti, nine-yard touchdown run. Again within reach here, 35-28, your sinus. But Nick Standard's kickoff goes out of bounds, and that will do it as your sinus is able to run out the clock. 35-28, they pull the upset after nearly missing on the upset the previous week against Hopkins. The Ursinus offense outgained Muhlenberg 432-303. They had nearly a 40-20 time of possession advantage. Jack Snixka, 16-for-28, 200 yards, four passing touchdowns. Wow, what a game there. Let's talk about Montclair State at Salve Regina. As things would start close, four minutes into it, Salve Regina's Jake Stack gets a two-yard touchdown run. 7-0, Salve Regina led the game. Four minutes later, Mackay Mickens, a six-yard touchdown run, ties it up at seven apiece in this game. Then in the second quarter, seven minutes into it, it's Avalani Mendez, a two-yard touchdown run for Montclair State. That would make it a lead for Montclair by the score of 14-7. After a field goal by Montclair State, with eight seconds left in the second quarter, Matt Spatucci gets a nine-yard touchdown pass from Mason Murdoch, 24-7 Montclair State. The third quarter was scoreless, and really they, they needed to do something in the third because Salve Regina just could not come back this game in the fourth quarter. 31-14 Montclair State final. Salve Regina's offense was outgained by Montclair State, 313-251. Jake Stack for Salve, 24-58. Uh, and more or less a backup role, don't forget. 247 yards, one passing touchdown, one rushing touchdown, but six interceptions. Injury bug is really a bugaboo for Salve Regina this season, and I bit them there. We'll finish up Region 2 with two big pack games. First, Washington Jefferson a case in the second quarter, 13 seconds left. That's uh, our first score in the game, to be honest. Noah Coyne gets a 42-yard touchdown pass from Drew Saxon to make it 7-0 in favor of Case. We'll go all the way to the fourth quarter, 12.39 left, and it's John Paduzzi getting an 11-yard touchdown pass from Colton Jones to tie things up seven apiece. Then watch this play, third and goal at the Case 3, and Colton Jones is sacked for a seven-yard loss. Marco Toth with that sack. That would force a field goal by Devin Wyant, and that's a 27-yard field goal that's good. It's 10-7, 5.25 left. It's W&J's lead at this point. A minute later, watch what happens here. Pressure. Got to step up. Will, throw it deep over the middle. Receiver open. Caught. 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, Spartans. Guess who? Ethan Dollum. Oh. Wow, I feel great for Ethan Dollum. W&J would have chances. Here's a first and goal from the eight and Colton Jones is sacked for a loss of four yards. Second a goal from the 12, a fumbled snap, and so they just couldn't get things together, it seems like, here at the end of the game. Third and goal, Colton Jones looks for John Paduzzi. It is incomplete, and stop me if you heard this before, on fourth and goal, it's Colton Jones again missing John Paduzzi, and they would not cash in there, but they would get one last chance, or would they? Snap kicks off, it's a good one. High spiral at midfield. Caught. Fumble it. Fumble. Spartans recover. Ball game. Oh. Wow. What a uh, unfortunate turn of events for WJ, but Case 
Johnny on the spot really with that punt recovery and they win the game by the final score of 14 to 10. Drew Saxon 22 for 32, 297 yards, two passing touchdowns. Colton Jones for WNJ 24 for 41, 227 yards, one passing touchdown. Then finally in Region 2, Grove City at Carnegie Mellon. And the scoring uh, that we'll show you here starts uh, in about midway through the second quarter. Ben Mills gets a five-yard touchdown run as CMU takes a 23-6 lead there. Well, there would be a comeback as Grove City with 28 seconds left in the second. As Joey Gita would get a 27-yard touchdown pass from Logan Pfeffer to make it 23-13 at halftime in favor of CMU. The teams would trade touchdowns in the third and early in the fourth quarter, actually 7-18 left. Grove City's Scott Frazier gets a 27-yard touchdown pass from Logan Pfeffer to make it 30-26 Carnegie Mellon's lead, but 2.49 left. Ethan Reefer gets a 10-yard touchdown pass from Ben Mills. It's 37-26 CMU, and that put the game away. Ben Mills with 257 passing yards, three passing touchdowns, and one rushing touchdown. Carnegie Mellon's defense gets five sacks and four interceptions in the game. Pfeffer gets 372 total yards as GCC's quarterback and four total touchdowns. JB, a lot of uh, week three region two results here. Uh, I mean, a lot of exciting stuff to say the least. Take us through those games or some of the other scores. Yeah, I mean, the, the win, I mean, it's funny because going back to our preseason show, I picked W and J to potentially win the pack, but I had Case as my team to watch. So I guess I was right and wrong here and there. But this is a challenge for Region 2 teams, especially those that are competing for Pool C's, is that these conference races are so tight, there are basically losses that get piled up. And, and for the most part, it's really an AQ situation, and that's it. It's going to be hard for teams out of the Liberty League and the pack to, to really separate themselves in the Pool C race unless they can end up with that 9-1 and one record, which seems really elusive because everyone sort of cannibalizes off of everyone else. But elsewhere in, in Region 2, what sort of stood out to me, Frank, was that Keystone was up 27-7 to at halftime. That would have been the first win in program history. But William Patterson plays spoiler, comes back to win it 27-20 in the second half. Uh, a couple of other close games. You know, Teal, we thought maybe they could get a, a, a win here, break their long losing streak. They come up a little short. Uh, St. John Fisher and Hobart, Statesman kind of rebound after a tough week too, but hey, I mean, SUNY Morrisville 3-0 is the is a program best for them, and like you said, maybe puts the Empire 8 on notice that that the Mustangs are a team to be reckoned with. Otherwise, Ithaca and Cortland still look like juggernauts. Brockport's defense kind of flexed against Rochester, which I always thought that that was going to be the um, oh, the Courage Bowl matchup, but I don't think that's the that's the case this year. Uh, otherwise, you know, Kane beats Catholic pretty soundly. Dickinson seems to be like they're turning around in the in the Centennial, becoming kind of a mid mid card contender. And then um, Geneva Waynesburg, close game. Utica Western New England, interesting one, Frank. Maybe we should have had a video on this because the uh, the Chicken Riggies hang on to to win by two, and they have a huge game against Union. It's UU versus UC coming up in Week Four. I have a uh, feeling, actually, that would be a perfect game for the mayor to attend, but he's going to be somewhere else. More on that in a little bit. Yeah, uh, by the way, uh, Brockport St. John Fisher is the Courage Bowl now after all that switching up and everything else. So they guarantee that game's played because it's a conference game. That's kind of what happened where Rochester was able to walk away from that game because it wasn't a conference game back when. 
But I digress. Don't go too far, actually, JB, because we have two games with no video coming up here from Region 3, and we'll have you talk about the scores in Region 3 in a moment. First off, Harden-Simmons 41, UW-Platteville 0. The defense of Harden-Simmons, two interceptions and a fumble recovery. Galen Glynn, the Harden-Simmons quarterback, 12 for 24, 127 yards, two touchdowns and an interception. Uh, Nathan Shackelford for uh, Platteville, 175 total yards. Uh, we also want to show you just at least a photo here of the dedication of Fredenberg Field at the Cathedral and uh, Mary Harden Baylor's former head coach, the first head coach and only head coach before this last year of the program, uh, honored with his family there. They win 68-14 against Southwestern uh, from right down the street. Uh, luckily, the road trip home was not that long, although it probably felt long after that kind of score. Uh, Kyle King had six passing touchdowns in the first half alone and then did not play the rest of the game. Uh, to keep him rested up. JB Region 3, a little lighter in terms of the stuff we got for you here, but still, uh, this region's going to play some key role in our crunch times coming up in the next few weeks as league play starts up, especially that league play game. Uh, this was a league play game against Southwestern, but the, the big one, Harden-Simmons, coming up. SAA play as well coming up soon. Yeah, obviously the ASC week four, that's going to be the big subject of conversation. But there's also some other stuff that's starting to, to bubble up a little bit here. We'll see it in the USA South also. Um, but for the most part, no real surprises in in um, in Region 3 this this weekend. Hey, you know, credit our friends at Sewanee. They're, they're two and one. That's nice. Nice to see them with a, with another win after a couple of uh, lean years. Hampton Sydney puts up a 70 burger. <laughs> Holy smokes in a game against Greensboro. That's a lot of points. Um, Howard Payne almost does the same thing to, to Hendricks, though, uh, in Arkansas. And Brevard still looking for that elusive first win. They, they came up a little short with a 23-6 to six decision to Averett, who is quietly off to a pretty solid start. Uh, elsewhere, you know, Trinity, Texas still looks dominant. You know, I think what's really been interesting, Frank, and you can talk about this as a, as a top 25 voter, is now there's literally six or seven teams in the conversation for either a number one vote, a potential national championship run. This is the most wide open D3 has probably been in, I mean, since I can remember. What, what are your thoughts as a voter? Don't believe the hype. I, I don't think we're really there. I, I think that we've got some anomalies being uh, voted into number one. We'll talk more about that after crunch time. I actually did want to talk about those two uh, wayfinding uh, number one votes uh, that we saw there and you know what, what people might be thinking along the way. But first, let's get through the rest of the highlights because we have one more region set to go through here, and that's regions four through six. Uh, first off, uh, Whitewater at Barry. We talked uh, to Gavin Gray on Friday, and uh, you know what? It was a closer game than last year, or the last time. Yeah, it was last year that it was played. 17-3 uh, we're showing here, but let's show you how he got there. Five minutes into the second quarter, Stephen Hine gets a 56-yard touchdown pass from Evan Lewandowski for Whitewater. 7-0, they take the lead. Six minutes later, Preston Strasburg gets a two-yard touchdown run. It's 14-0. Whitewater at halftime. Uh, actually, I should take that back because uh, Matthew Syverson gets a 52-yard field goal for Barry. So the actual halftime score is 14 to three. We're not editing that. We're just going to leave that in because we'll see how many mistakes I make in crunch time from time to time. And then Whitewater uh, would add a field goal 11 minutes into the second half. Their defense would stop Barry's efforts in the fourth quarter, and that would essentially be it. It's 17 to three final. 
in favor of Whitewater. As Hine gets six catches, 175 yards and a touchdown. Very defense, though, held up well. The interception, a fumble recovery, and held Whitewater only 98 rushing yards. Realistically, the fourth quarter, they shut them out. The third quarter, they gave up three points. Uh, you know what? If there's anything such as a moral victory, Barry should maybe walk away with some sense of they're improving compared to last year if this game was any, uh, let's say, indication of that. Loris at Central. Weird game here. A halftime score was 14-7 Loris, and the teams would trade touchdowns early in the third. So let's now fast forward to 140 left, third quarter. Ryan New gets a 35-yard touchdown pass from Brady Ketchum. 28-21 in favor of Central. Gotta got love the name Ketchum for a quarterback, don't you? Uh, Central uh, would get the ba uh, ball back, looked ready to put the game away, but... Takes a snap. Hands it off to Walk. Met in the backfield. Can't turn the oh. corner, and then had the ball stripped away. Ball still loose on the ground. Recovered by Loris at the 40 to midfield, and Carson Comer tracks him down at the 41-yard line. Wow, and that fumble recovery is huge as it led to Damani Brown getting a 13-yard touchdown pass from Evan England. So now it's 28-27. The kick failed, so 5:04 left. We're almost tied, but still Central leading. Two minutes later, Marty McGovern gets an eight-yard touchdown pass from Evan England, 35-28 in favor of Loris. We don't have video of it, but Jeff Herbers will get a 16-yard touchdown pass from Ketchum to tie the game, 35 apiece with 43 seconds left. Loris is able to get down the field with one second left. Field goal try, snap, spot, kick, it's on the way and it is good! With one second remaining, Loris has a 38-35 lead. Aiden Driscoll nails that 37-yard field goal, 38-35. Loris wins and makes a statement after a rough start to the season. Congratulations to them. The teams combined for 922 total yards, 57 first downs in the game. Driscoll with the game-winning 37-yard field goal with that one second remaining. And finally, in the OAC, a conference matchup here as well. It's Baldwin Wallace at John Carroll or the team from University Heights. Well, the team from University Heights scores first early, a minute and a half into the game. Tadis Tatarunas gets a 17-yard touchdown pass from Joe Collins to make it 7-0, John Carroll. Then in the third quarter, we'll fast forward to seven minutes into it. Evan McVay's six-yard touchdown run makes it 14-0, John Carroll. Fourth quarter, two minutes left. John Marcus Rowland, a 48-yard pick six for a touchdown, 21-0. Baldwin Wallace would score late, but it was too little too late. 21-7, John Carroll. As Evan McKay, 21 rushes, 101 yards, and a rushing touchdown. John Marcus Rowland, 48-yard pick six that you saw right there. JB, uh, I'll tell you, Baldwin Wallace has to be disappointed with how the season has started overall. John yeah. Carroll still in the conversation. We uh, didn't talk about Heidelberg, uh, who had a big win versus ONU. Scott Donaldson uh, he pings me and says, I thought us New York guys stuck together after I picked against them in uh, D3Football.com. Sorry, Coach. But go ahead, tell us more about 4 through 6. Well, yeah, I think uh, for the most part, we saw a lot of the, the favorites win. Um, once again, Redlands can't seem to get off the schneid there. 0-3, uh, looking like they're probably not going to be going back to the playoffs. But, you know, Linfield is kind of in the driver's seat there still in the Northwest. Uh, Lacrosse with an impressive 28-21 win over a D2 Wayne State team making a statement. 
uh, uh, Rivers wins big, Heidelberg wins big, Dubois wins big, et cetera. Albion wins big over Rose Holman, a former playoff team and conference champ. Wittenberg with a big with a big win. I think also when you kind of get to the the, you know, the backside of, of all these you know, games, there's a ton to go. But I guess what sort of stands out specific with that overtime win in in like the late night uh, red eye <laughs> you know time slot is pretty interesting. Um, and then elsewhere, you know, Kalamazoo remains I think undefeated. They're going to be playing Alfred at Alfred on in week four, which is a very interregional matchup. Not something we see. You know, teams from Michigan traveling all the way to upstate New York. Mount St. Joe's beats Hope. Trine looking very strong still. Wabash, a lot of the usual suspects. Uh, St. Scholastica putting up 63 points on Crown is a little interesting. Um, El Monmouth was a, was a game that we picked, and and, and they <laughs> at least we got that one right, um, fortunately. And then elsewhere, I don't know, Frank, I think it's just there's almost like too, too many games to, to cover here. Um, but hey, it was an exciting week three, and here we go into week four. Well, before we go to week four, I will tell you that that was crunch time for week three of the 2022 Division Three college football season. JB, before we uh, continue, uh, we really should talk about JB's MVPs. Uh, I, I want to put in a, a special you know, shout out, though, to Sam Alicia, who had both that fumble recovery and that uh, essentially recovery before they lost the ball to a touchback, essentially, uh, by UMD uh, in that Framingham State game. Uh, so his gameplay really, it, maybe it didn't matter in terms of final score, but in terms of momentum issues, it really did stifle Framingham State. So great job by him, a former guest here on In the Huddle in our preseason show with Dante Villasantos, who can play 60 minutes of DM football. Now, having said that, it's all yours. Yeah, clearly he can. I mean, that was an impressive win. And like you said, Frank, kind of a must-win situation for the Corsairs to, to finally get over that hump in the MASCAC race. There hasn't been a different MASCAC champion since 2016, I believe. Corsairs now in the driver's seat with an impressive performance. But other impressive performances, we heard about it just a, a few seconds ago. Aiden Driscoll from Loras, that, that 36 or 37-yard game win field goal freshman that's that's a big pressure play for him um and then i went on the defensive side with ryan Badolis from your sinus he was a real pivotal player in i think he caused two fumbles he had a couple of sacks that was probably one of the main reasons why the, the bears were able to upset the mules and so uh given the little defensive mvp of the week uh to to ryan and then an offense, I, I really like the performance of, of Malik Frost. I'm, hopefully I'm pronouncing his first name Malik, correctly. I think. Malik. Malik. Malik Frost. So he basically averaged 10 yards per carry, had over 200 rushing yards. I think he had four touchdowns in the, in the huge blowout win for Hampton-Sydney. I mean, talk about a, um, you know, carrying the team. Uh, he really did. Great job. And so those are my week three MVPs. Can't complain about those one bit. Uh, what I can complain about is the fact I'm still down two games to you uh, in this uh, pick for the season, 29-9 versus 27-11. Uh, pretty good records overall by us out of 38 games to yeah. have either 27 or 29, uh, right? Uh, pretty good, although, like you said, we might not have picked all the key games last week, and we'll reconsider that for next time. Uh, so as I move all of my papers off my front here, uh, this is kind of our free-form exercise. 
uh, I will assure everybody that I did inspect the field at Springfield for any overheating iPads on Saturday. We found none, so that's good news. Uh, we're, we've got improvement uh, this week. Um, but the number one votes, you brought it up earlier, uh, Harden-Simmons and Trinity both getting a number one vote. While I can appreciate that to a certain degree, I, I just don't see the basis using what is generally the view of you've got to beat a team or certain teams to justify it. Trinity did lose to Mary Harden Baylor with much the same cast, maybe a slightly better defense last year uh, Mary Harden Baylor had. Uh, and then they lose to Whitewater. So how would you put Trinity ahead of Whitewater at this point under these circumstances. I, I, I don't understand how you could sit there and do that. On the flip side of things here, and then you know put them ahead of St. John's too on, on top of that because of St. John's beating Whitewater. I, I just think that there's this assumption of strength that we can't prove at this point in time based on results we've had in the books in the last, let's say, season-ish, uh, you know, going back into last season, if you can use some of that. Um, Harden Simmons, same question, I guess. Uh, I mean, okay, they beat Platteville by, you know, umpteen points. And so I guess the assumption is they can beat Whitewater readily or something like that. First things first, they do have to get through Mary Harden Baylor. And maybe they should have waited to apply that number one vote until this upcoming game this Saturday. What are your thoughts on the number one votes? Well, at least... The D3Football.com Top 25 recognized the fact that the Warhawks beat Mary Harden Baylor and have them ranked in the correct order. The AFCA has it flip-flopped. I don't know how that happened, but anyway, yeah, I think I think you have to be a little more stringent with number one votes. Realistically, it should be a three-way race at, at this point with North Central, um, St. John's, and I'm blanking. My Union. Mount Union, yeah, those guys from Ohio. Those are the top three, um, and you could rank those in any order. It's still sort of subjective. I mean, obviously, North Central made it to the national championship game last year. They still look very strong. Until somebody proves otherwise, they, they should probably remain in that spot. Yeah, it just it's a weird scenario. And yeah, Pat and Greg were excited about the history made by a number seven team getting a number one vote. I don't think I get excited by that based on the current state of affairs. I, I think it's more a proof of that could be a slightly broken system if that's happening, but it will clean itself up eventually here. Not sure with Trinity, yeah. to be honest, because it might not clean itself up if they're able to run the table in the SAA, because there's not going to be a matchup that would be pivotal to make a determination between them and another team receiving number one votes for the rest of the season. Yeah. So if they went out, I mean, they're probably gonna keep that number one in that situation. Um, final thoughts here. I, let's begin a little talk here about Mary Harden-Baylor and Harden-Simmons. What do you think? I mean, what's gonna happen in the lead up to that game? Are we gonna see t-shirts? Are we gonna see a lot of the same junk talk that we've seen in the past? Yeah. Or, yeah, yep. we, okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, go ahead. I I think so. I mean, I've already seen on social media, you know, some postings of, you know, the, the matchup and basically, you know, how UMHB has just won it so many more times over the years. And I think, you know, that there, there's going to be some psychological gameplay and, 
stuff talking and so on uh, from the UMHB alumni side, maybe. Um, but Harden Simmons has quietly put together a very impressive resume. I mean, to not only out a, a WEAC or WIAC team, but to shut them out too, uh, even though they may not be at the top, you know, one or two teams in the conference, is still pretty impressive. They you know, blew up that Wayland team, wherever they're from. So I think if this is good, if this is the the year, and we've seen that the Crusaders' defense can be a little more susceptible, yeah, we'll have to, you'll be you'll be on the sidelines, Frank. You'll have a front row seat. Indeed, I will be. Yep, <laughs> I, I, I'm so excited I can't get my mute right again. Uh, no, it, it's it, people ask me why are you going back down there, and I, I've said if there is a year it's going to happen. It's this year. Does it mean it's going to happen? We'll see on Friday when we predict it, and then Saturday when the game plays out. But uh, it, this seems to be the time, the, the point where I think if you're going to ever get over the hump, if you're Harden Simmons, this would be it. Now, they probably should send some uh, real upset notes to Whitewater because I think if Mary Harden-Baylor had won that game and moved to this game at 3-0, yeah. Harden-Simmons might have a better edge or advantage. I think the smelling salts application for Mary Harden-Baylor, especially on the defensive side, is important. And you look at Galen Glenn's numbers from this past weekend, even in a big win versus Platteville, yeah, they, they weren't, weren't exactly impressive. So you can see that they may be one-dimensional. And if you allow a team like Mary Harden-Baylor success uh, on defense because you're one-dimensional and they can key in on you, I, I think you've got a problem. So we'll, we'll talk about exactly how this game plays out on Friday, but there's a lot of variables to look at here. And you, I did it with Mary Harden-Baylor to suggest how UW-Dub's game against them would be a better game than the week one set we saw, and we were right about that. Uh, I'm going to use the same analysis to begin breaking down Harden-Simmons of why they might struggle a little bit at certain points or in certain ways in their game. But it doesn't mean they're losing. Again, I, I, this is going to play out very interestingly, and I'm excited to be there for the game coming up on Saturday. Last thoughts? You know, I, we're, we're starting to pivot into conference play and big conference matchups in the next few weeks that are going to be huge. I mean, Bellhaven is, has a big one against Huntington this upcoming weekend. Week five, we've got games like Ithaca versus Hobart. And, and so the, the big conference rivalries are going to start to, to build up over the next coming weeks. So we might not have as many marquee games as we saw in weeks one and two. There will be at least a couple every weekend that are must-see D3 football games. It's going to be really great. Yeah, that Bellhaven-Huntington game could be uh, essentially USA South championship type of game because we're not sure who else is going to challenge Bellhaven. Brevard might throw their uh, hat into this a little bit. You, you can never count them fully out either. But the point being, huge game, just like that Mascac game so early in the Mascac season between Framingham State and UMD. But then the challenge is, as UMD, I think, finds out over time, just because you win that big game, and Framingham State knows this too, you can't drop one now, and now the target's squarely on their back. And so when you have these early big games, and the winner of Mary Harden-Baylor and Harden-Simmons is going to have the same problem ultimately in the ASC, then you've got to carry that target, that bullseye for the entire rest of the league season. Not very easy to do that. 
So, uh, you know, some, some conferences like backloading uh, their schedule for a reason, and maybe that's why, to sort of build the suspense instead of having the target practice every weekend going on. Folks, we're going to be out of here for now. We will be back on Friday with a huge preview of that Mary Harden-Baylor at Harden-Simmons game, among many others. So join us, and we'll have an interview, I'm sure, coming up uh, of relevance. So join us when you can. We'll see you on Friday.